Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Stephen Emmerich shares with us a message titled, The Great Decrees. We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. If you can turn to John chapter 3, verse 28. That'd be great. John chapter 3, verse 28. So the series that we're concluding today is pray period, fast period. It's about praying and fasting. And so when Tim kicked it off a few weeks ago, he talked about intercessory prayer. And the one thing he talked about intercession is that all intercession is prayer, but not all prayer is intercession. Great point. Point number two was intercession is a request. And point number three was intercession is a petition. And he really broke it down, the difference between the request and the petition. The request is really typically one person. It could be many, but typically one. Whereas a petition is when a group of us come into agreement, and we have a request for God, but we come together and we petition God to do something. Like, I'm sure there's been many people petitioning God, please break up this storm, this Harvey storm, right? We've been petitioning God, interceding for the people down there. Then he followed that up with fasting. And the three benefits of fasting that he touched on were it kills my flesh, because there's no way that we could fast and deny the flesh without the flesh being killed in some form or fashion. The second one, the second point was the Holy Spirit gets to have his way in and through my life. And I love that because how in the world can we kill the flesh and deny the flesh without being more sensitive to the Holy Spirit, right? And so the third point was I get answers to my questions and I'm in position to accept them. And the second piece of that was something that I hadn't really heard talked about before is when you have a, a lifestyle of praying and fasting, it puts us in position to not only hear the answers of God more clearly, but also when the answers aren't what we were expecting, we're able to accept it even more. Like Michael was saying, it's not, we don't thank God for the tough times, but we thank him in them, right? And then last week, uh, Tim was here, but he was in the back of the house over there just being a resident, which I loved. But Mary Jo Pierce, who's here today, thank you, Mary Jo, for last week. It was so good. She really kind of brought those first two sermons together by talking about praying and fasting. And, the, and she didn't talk much on fasting, but what she did say was powerful. She said, I'm always fasting something. And that hit me because I've always seen fasting as kind of like a project. <laughs> you know, well, okay, I'm going to start here and I'm going to end here. It's January 1st till, you know, till February 3rd, the first 33 days of the year. I'm going to fast to God. You know, I'm going to give God a tithe of the year. You know, it's been a project. And so, um, so I've been guilty of that where, you know, my fasting was the first month or two of the year. And then after that, I just kind of went on with my life. Um, no longer, thanks to Mary Jo. And so she also really focused on three non-negotiables in prayer. The first non-negotiable is to establish a prayer chair or more importantly, a listening chair in our home. Find a space where we can truly listen to God. And she said the best thing uh, that I'll never remember is talking is so overrated when it comes to prayer. And, it, it, and I had never heard it put that way, and she is so right. To the point where on Monday morning, this past Monday morning, after hearing the sermon, I went, I, I went to my listening chair in the morning. I, this is my listening chair. I got my Bible, and I literally just hugged it and sat there and just listened. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, go to Revelation chapter 4. And he put, took me right to, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Within seconds. I was like, wow, this really works. 
I'm hugging my Bible, and I'm quiet, and I actually heard you, God, and I actually did hear your voice because the enemy would not want to take me to holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That was just wonderful. The second point she talked about was fall in love with your Bible. So I did both. I listened, and I hugged my Bible, and I was loving on it, and it was great. But it's more than just hugging the book. It's falling in love with the spirit behind it. The entire Bible, from from Genesis all the way to Revelation, really reveals the character of God and how much he loves us. And it is so important that we fall in love with it, not just knowing it from the academic standpoint, but really understanding the love of God through his word. And then the third point was journaling. And if you're like me, as soon as she said journaling, I kind of tensed up. Oh, gosh, I'd have to write. Well, it wasn't about diary. It wasn't about what you ate today and where I am at my life and my goals and all the other things. It was really about as we're listening and in the presence of the love of the Lord in his word that we actually write down what he says to us. And to look over the years, and I know I have notes from over the years that I could go back and see promises and, and encouragement and things like that that is so good to go back. So journaling from that standpoint, write down what God has said to you. So a lifestyle of praying and fasting requires really one thing as I was meditating and asking God, what should I talk about today? And the thing I couldn't really shake was decrease, that we have to decrease. There's no way we could have a lifestyle of prayer and fasting unless we decrease. And so we can't submit to that kind of lifestyle without discipline. And Mary Jo last week even talked about discipline and discipleship. How many people want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I mean, most of us would say we do, right? We want to be a disciple. But what we don't want is that that same word comes from the same root word of discipline. We don't want to discipline ourselves to become a disciple. And you can see all throughout the Gospels the, the, the struggles that the, uh, that the apostles and disciples themselves had in, that, in, in forming that discipline. And so John chapter 3, verse 28 says, You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. This is uh, John the Baptist. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. In other words, he must increase, and I must decrease. So the world says increase. Increase in status. Increase your income. Increase your voice. Be heard. Increase your political stance, increase all this stuff, increase, increase, increase is what the world says. But when you actually get in the Bible and start seeing what Jesus himself modeled, the Bible says decrease. He who is first must be last. So increase is a tricky thing because it promises validation, acceptance, purpose, and those are things that only God can provide. And so when we're living a life of increase, We're filling our lives with things that we think are going to give us or help us attain those those areas of validation, acceptance, and all that. But the reality is it's only time with God that will do that. And so a a lifestyle of decrease is difficult. Um, But Jesus' entire life was a picture of decrease. Think about it. When we talk about fasting, a lot of times one of the first scriptures people will go to is uh, Jesus being sent into the wilderness, being led into the wilderness to, to fast for 40 days. But I would argue that that's not the first time that we see Jesus fasting. He actually fasted for 33 years from heaven. He 
was up in heaven, Adam and Eve messed up. The father looks around and says, who's going to go and fix this? I will, Dad. I will unwrap my heavenly self and wrap myself in flesh and go down and be among the sheep as their shepherd. I want to smell like the sheep. I want to lead the sheep. I want them to know my voice. So for 33 years, he fasted heaven and all the glory that came with that. So it makes sense now. It makes it a little bit clear how he was able to go 40 days and 40 nights and being led by the Spirit because back in heaven, he, said, he knew ahead of time, all right, I'll do it. I know it's going to take some stuff, but I'm willing to go. So the subject of this message is the great decrease. So when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about a story I had heard about a university that sent out applications, and they got thousands of applicants. But there was one question on the, on the application that was interesting, and it actually asked, are you a leader or are you a follower? And 500 or so uh, students, incoming freshmen, were accepted. And what stood out to the, to the staff, though, was that out of the 500 or so kids that were going to be coming in, only one checked, I'm a follower. 499 others said they're a leader. Everybody wants to be a leader. Go to the bookstore and do a search for leadership books. How many are you going to find? Hundreds, maybe thousands. But go and ask, hey, I want to know where the following section is. <laughs> is there a following section here? Uh, yeah, there might be one or two, but, oh, those are about leadership too. <laughs> so following is tough, right? And with this whole, you know, culture of leadership, especially in America, it really makes it hard for us to really think that, that we have to be good followers first. And Jesus modeled that. He said, you have to be a good follower before you can be a good leader. You have to learn to submit to your, to your spouse, to, to your boss, to your pastor, to, to even to friends, even to family. And if we have a hard time following, it's probably a sign that we are not really living a life of decrease. So there's three signs that I want to focus on today that are really signs that we're not living a life of decrease. Or said another way, they're actually signs that reveal that we're living a life of increase and we need to make a shift. Because you can't do both. You can't live increase and decrease at the same time. You're either going up or you're going down. You're either lifting yourself up or you're, you're pushing yourself back. And so the first sign is dehydration. I actually talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, came up with some symptoms. But when you look at the, the definition of dehydration, the act or process of dehydrating. Duh. <laughs> of course, right? Well, what's dehydrating? An abnormal loss of water from the body, especially from illness or physical exertion. For de so dehydration is nothing more than the combination of a lack of water, a lack of hydration, an overexertion or an illness. And when you combine those two, it can be deadly. And so Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they will be filled. And so the problem with becoming dehydrated physically is that there's a lot of correlations with it spiritually, right? And so the spiritual dehydration occurs when we're thirsting for anything but righteousness. 
we're thirsting for increase somewhere in our lives, and that, that, that can cause spiritual dehydration. And so I remember for years, actually, there was years when, when um, you know, I went to ministry school, and, you know, I was saved, and, you know, Liesl and I had been married, and I, and I remember going through times when I would see people living a certain way or saying that they wouldn't see a certain movie or read a certain book or go to a certain place. And I would actually have a, well, it doesn't take all that mentality. And I kind of found myself even making fun of fellow Christians for not being willing to watch a certain type of show. But what I was really doing is I was really making fun of them because I was willing to compromise and they weren't. And so instead of me just admitting, well, no, it does take all that, I would put it back on them. Oh, it doesn't take all that. You know, he or she, they're, they're just, they're the holy rollers, <laughs> not me. I'm not as holy as them. Well, what, what I was really admitting was I'm compromising. And so there's actually five symptoms that you might be dehydrated. So don't get confused. There's going to be three points. <laughs> dehydration is a sign that you're not living a life of decrease, but these are just five symptoms of dehydration. The first one, and I'm just going to go through these quickly. The first one is a dry mouth or bad breath. That's a physical symptom of dehydration. The spiritual application is what are our words like? What do we sound like to others? Are we profane? Are we negative? Are we biting in our comments? Are we argumentative? So let's turn to Exodus chapter 17 real quick. Exodus chapter 17. All right, chapter 17, verse 2 and 3. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. We're thirsty. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? Well, I don't even see in there in them saying anything about God. <laughs> they were complaining to Moses and about Moses' leadership. But in verse 3, but tormented by thirst, underline that. They continued to argue, underline that, with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and, the lives, and our livestock with thirst? Now, they were tormented by thirst, and they were arguing with Moses. Continuing to argue with Moses. My guess is, is if they had plenty of water and plenty of food and plenty of resources, there probably wouldn't even be an argument right? And so when I look at this, it's just, again, it's just a sign. Are we argumentative? Are we complaining? What are the things that we're complaining about? And when we look at that, it's a sign. It's a, it's a symptom that maybe there's something going on in our spirit that we need to address. The next symptom is fatigue. The spiritual application of this would be lack of service drained, discontented, isolated, because I'm tired. And so while we're physically fatigued uh, because of physical dehydration, when we're spiritually dehydrated, you can start to see that you start pulling back. We start pulling back from some things. And we may not notice it right away. And so Isaiah 29 verse 8 says, A hungry person dreams of eating, but wakes up still hungry. 
A thirsty person dreams of drinking, but is still faint from thirst when morning comes. And I know there's been times in my life when I was running on empty, and I would have dreams of things being right, whatever. It could be marriage, could be job, could be ministry, could be family, could be children. But then when you wake up in the morning and you think that, man, that dream was so real, it was so refreshing. But then you realize, man, I'm still dry. I'm still thirsty. And so rather than running to God when we're in this state, we actually start looking for things in the world to quench the thirst. And I came across this really cool poem. And so I'm going to read through it. And if you want to close your eyes and just listen to the words, that's up to you. But I just want you to see if you're somewhere in here. I was once sad and lonely, having nobody to comfort me. So I wore a mask that always smiled to hide my feelings behind a lie. Before long, I had many friends. With my mask, I was one of them. But deep inside, I still felt empty, like I was missing a part of me. Nobody could hear my cries at night, for I designed my mask to hide the lies. Nobody could see the pain I was feeling, for I designed my mask to be laughing. Behind all the smiles were the tears, and behind all the comfort were the fears. Everything you see wasn't everything there was to me. Day by day, I was slowly dying. I couldn't go on. There was something missing. Until now, I'm still searching for the thing that'll stop my crying, for someone who'll erase my fears, for the person who'll wipe my tears. But until then, I'll keep on smiling, hiding behind this mask I'm wearing, hoping one day I can smile. Till then, I'll be here waiting. Have you lost your desire to serve? Are you hiding, lonely, isolated? Have you just lost your way? Well, Psalm 107.9 says, For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. If you're fatigued, you might be spiritually dehydrated. The third example, uh, third symptom of dehydration is just our bodies overheating. We get easily angered, bitterness. We overheat. Revelations chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 says, A great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Well, at this time, many people will be unaware that the waters are bitter, or they might be desperately dehydrated and will drink anything that's put in front of them. I would, I would just say, take an inventory are you at a place where anything that comes your way, you're willing to drink, even if it's not good for you? The, the fourth symptom is muscle spasms, lack of self-control. We lose control of our flesh. Sin creeps in. Second Peter 1.3 says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Everything we need, he's given us. But then the next line is how we do it. We have received all of this by coming to know him. It's only by spending time with him, getting to know him, that we can live a godly life. I think the enemy has tricked us over the years to thinking that self-control, um, quitting habits, those types of things is, is up to us. That, oh, if I only stop smoking, then, then I can do more for God. If I can only stop this, then I'll do this. But the reality is, is you can't stop that if we're not close to him. His arms are open. He says, I don't care. Come as you are. I don't care what your issue is. I want it. I'm here. I want to help you with that. 
And so don't let shame or guilt or condemnation stop you from coming to God as you are. For me, I know after I got saved for a couple years, I had a hard time stopping smoking. And it, it finally just got to a point where I said, all right, Lord, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my best to lay this down, but I need you. And if my life isn't any better, then I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I'm talking almost instantly that desire was taken away. And within days and months, my life started changing. So whatever it is for you, um, I would just submit that to God. And then the last thing is lightheadedness. Uh, that's the physical symptom. The, the spiritual symptom would be unwise choices. What are the choices we're making? Our relationship with Christ and others is suffering due to our bad choices. The Proverbs calls a fool an unwise person, lacking sense and lacking judgment. And so I just remember as a child, and of course as children, we're going to be foolish. And I remember we lived in these apartments and there was all these open fields, but there was this one huge field that they were cleaning out to build a new apartment building, a new apartment complex. And there was a huge dumpster with all this trash and there was trash still all over the field. And so a buddy of mine went in, we were like 10 years old, and, uh, and we went in and we found a little barbecue grate. And so we decided we were going to make a barbecue in the field. And so we dug a hole and we put the barbecue grate on it and we started putting some wood and some, you know, papers and probably some plastic because we were foolish. Um, just things that probably didn't make sense. But then we got some matches, we lit it and we're like, ah, oh, we got a barbecue. Well, we didn't have any meat or anything to barbecue, but we built a barbecue. Well, it got a little bigger than we thought, and we were too close to the dumpster, and the next thing you know, the dumpster was starting to catch on fire, and we were trying to throw dirt on it, and we finally, you know, we were like, fire, fire, well, at first it was fire, fire, and then it was fire, fire, and we just took off, and we ran, 10 years old. Well, thankfully, it was in the middle of a field with dirt around it and no brush. It was far enough away from the other buildings to where only the dumpster burned up. But I felt like God brought that to remembrance for me because I started thinking about my adult life and some of the bad choices that I made before I was saved and even after I was saved. You know, Liesl and I bought a house in, in 2003, and we could barely afford the house. But we were so caught up in trying to keep up with people and were worried if we invited people over that it wasn't filled up that they might think less of us when we actually just bought a home. We were homeowners. People probably would have celebrated. So instead, and I probably was the ringleader, let's go to Rooms to Go. 18 months of no interest. <laughs> and boy, we filled up the rooms, but it was all on credit that eventually we got in trouble with because we could barely afford the house. It was, I think at the time we were, I was single income and working at a nonprofit, so I wasn't making a lot of money. But because we weren't content with taking time and allowing God to, be, to just be patient with God and, and, the, and, and let the increase come naturally, we forced it. And so when I look at those choices, I can, I can look back. and I mean, there's three, four, five, Liesla might say 10 or 15 <laughs> choices that I've made that I know were bad choices and were a result of being spiritually dehydrated. And so if we really look at our choices that we're making from day to day, week to week, month to month, it will be a barometer on how close or how far away we are from God because the Holy Spirit will convict us and help us make better choices if we submit that to him. So when we look at our words, lack of service, are we easily angered? Are we struggling with lack of self-control? And are we making unwise choices? If we're struggling with one, a few, or all of those, 
those are symptoms of spiritual and emotional dehydration. So what's the cure for physical dehydration? Water and rest. That's it. You do those two things, you're fine. Now you can eat and do some other things, but if you just get water and rest, you'll be fine. So what's the cure for spiritual dehydration? Water and rest. The difference is it's his water, his well, and resting in him. That's the only two things that you can do. So, point number two. This is the second sign that we're not living a life of decrease or that we're living a life of increase. And this one is distance. The first one, dehydration. The second one, distance. So we all go through times of distance with God, with, 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 with other people. I mean, you can just look through the Bible and see, you know, the Jewish leaders um, completely rejected uh, Jesus and put distance between anything he did and them. Uh, Peter ended up denying Jesus three times, uh, was restored. But, that, but if you look at it, at that distance, it was really a distance in his heart that needed to be addressed. And then uh, Jesus also called out the religious leaders and said, outwardly you look like you follow God, but inwardly you're like whitewashed tombs and you're, you're really dead spiritually. And so there's really two types of distance. There's an inward distance and an outward distance. The inward distance, there's a great example of that in the book of Ruth, um, and it's Naomi, the mom. And so if you want to go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, um, while you're going there, it's essentially a story about Naomi and her husband and her two sons and their wives being pushed out of Bethlehem into a, town, into a place called Moab uh, because of a famine. And I'm sure that Naomi had dreams of, you know, feeding their family and, and getting back on their feet and, and uh, having grandchildren and, and seeing the family expand. Well, when she got there, her husband died. We don't know exactly how long they were there when he died, but he died when they got to Moab. And then the, the Bible says that 10 years later, she lost both of her sons. So I started thinking about that, that for 10 years after her husband died, this is a, a devout Jewish woman who loved God and was raised in the ways of God and was probably hoping and praying for children to, to replace what she had lost in her husband. Yet 10 years go by, and now her sons die, and now there's no hope of the family continuing because she's too old to have more kids, and she has to release the two girls to go back to their homes. And she does. She says, go. I can't do anything for you. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. You go home. Well, Ruth said no. I've been with you all these years. I, I've not only fallen in love with you, but I've fallen in love with the God that you worship. So where you go, I'll go. The God you worship, I'll worship. But even in the midst of that, in verse 20, chapter 1 of Ruth, it says, Naomi's response is, don't call me Naomi. She responded, instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? There was a distance in her heart between her and God. And you can tell because it says that she left full. If she was leaving full, then she, her, she had hope. She couldn't wait to see what God was gonna do. But then life caught up to her and now she's about to go back home and has no more hope. And the, and the trick of the enemy is, is that the Lord 
The Almighty has made life bitter for me. And then she even says here that the Lord has brought me home empty. God is not the source of the tragedy. He wasn't the source of that. We don't know why they died. We don't know why they didn't have kids. But if you go and read the rest of the story, her and Ruth go back, and Ruth ends up meeting Boaz, and and they have children, and they're completely restored. He's wealthy. Naomi gets everything that she had hoped for that she didn't have in those 10 years, but she got it a little later in life. It was delayed, but it wasn't denied. And it's such a wonderful story of seeing how God, even in her distance in her heart, he still loved her enough to give her all the things that she had hoped for earlier in her life. And then an example of outward distance is in Luke chapter 15. So if you go to Luke chapter 15, essentially, this is an entire chapter on talking about things that are lost. And the core of it is that Jesus is trying to get uh, his audience um, to realize how much God loves everyone, not just believers. This is this, the first story is um, about a sheep that is lost. A hundred sheep that a shepherd is taking care of. One sheep goes away. The shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. And, um, and he basically says uh, in there that he cares about every sinner. Even one he will chase after. Let me actually go there real quick because I want to point something out. So I asked you guys to go to Luke 15, but I didn't go to Luke 15. Here we go. So in verse 7, it says, in the same way. So he just told the story about the sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't stayed away. The next story is about the lost coin. It's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one. She puts all the lights on in the house and sweeps every corner to find the coin and then runs out and rejoices with her family and friends as she found this one coin. And again, he says the same thing that in the same way, um, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. All of heaven's rejoicing when we gave our life to the Lord, and he rejoices when others do. And so the third parable is the parable of the lost son. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to look at uh, verses 11 through 14. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. So he's already given two examples, but to illustrate it further, to, to, to bring it home, to, to land this plane, whatever you want to call it. He told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. We don't have time to talk about that, but that's a whole other issue. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So he gave his wealth to the son that stayed and to the son that wanted to leave. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to what? A distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. Starving has a way of getting our attention, doesn't it? So he physically was done with his father. Give me my inheritance, I'm out. I'm going to another land. I'm going to live life on my own. I'm going to do it myself. I don't need you. I'm done. I'm done with you, God. I'm leaving church. I'm leaving the faith. I'm not going to read anymore. I'm leaving the ministry. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to start a career. I'm going to increase my life. I'm done trying to live a life of decrease. Look what it's gotten me. Now, the story goes on to talk about how he ends up in a pig pen 
and slop and thinking about even the servants in my father's home are better off than I am. So he wants to go back. So verse 20, he says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Naomi tried to change her name to bitterness. Now this son is trying to change his name. He doesn't want to even be called son. And so there's danger of shame and condemnation from keeping us from receiving what our father wants to give us. But his father said to his servants, so the thing I love about this is he didn't even acknowledge his son's comment. He turns right to the servants and says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. He had no idea his son was coming back that day. The father is, was continually fattening a calf, I would argue, probably from the day he left. Start fattening the calf because he's going to be back and we want to have a feast. And that's what God is saying to all of us at any time that we struggle like this young man did, that God is sitting there waiting. He has a calf that he's fattening that he wants to cook for you and eat with you. Then he goes on to say, we must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when it just took a moment to turn back to God, and I just felt a party in my spirit that I was so thankful. There was so much peace and joy in that moment knowing that God was waiting for me regardless of the pig pens that I had been in, regardless of how I saw myself wanting to change my name, any of that, and that's such an awesome place to be. And so with distance being able to take place inwardly or outwardly, When I look at this story, I see the difference of mercy and grace on full display. Mercy gives us second chances. And if you're like me, third, fourth, fifth, 20th chances. But grace gives us a feast. And so can we just thank God for his grace and his mercy? Because I know that there's been times in my life when I was ready to physically leave everything. But if it wasn't for his love just holding on to me, and keeping me from making a terrible decision that would have killed my marriage, would have hurt my boys, would have ended any chance of being in any type of public ministry. It was his grace and mercy that kept me just staying there. When you've done all you can do but stand, just stand. The third and final sign that we're, that we're not living a life of decrease is debt. Dehydration, distance, and debt. Now, of course, the first thing we think about is money, and we'll talk about that for a second. I just found out that literally just like a week ago, Bloomberg uh, announced that U.S. consumer credit card debt just passed $1 trillion as of June 2017 in the United States. Collectively, all of our credit cards, I'm not going to ask you to hold your credit card up, but collectively, all of our credit cards in the United States, every single person that has a credit card, collectively our outstanding balance. We owe $1 trillion to the bank. Now, if we just decided as a people, we're not paying, which I don't suggest that, that could cripple the banks. They're scared. They're worried that, oh my gosh, what if the people just stop paying? (laughs) So it's kind of their fault that they extended the debt. It's kind of our fault that we accepted it. 
but collectively we're in this together. Now, the scary thing about this isn't just it's a trillion dollars, which I don't think any of us can really wrap our mind about how big a trillion dollars is. It's hard for me to even know what $1,000 is from month to month sometimes. But this is actually surpassing the record of consumer credit card debt that was set just before the 2008 global financial crisis. That was the last time that credit card debt was this high. So I'm not saying that there's going to be a crisis anytime soon. But again, if you look at signs, if you look at symptoms, if you look at things that, okay, could this be something we need to prepare for? Well, the best way to prepare for it isn't worrying about the trillion. It's worrying about what is our debt? What can we do to start addressing that? And it takes time. It definitely takes time. And so financial debt is certainly a sign that we're living a life of increase and not decrease because it's a simple formula. If you're in financial debt, you're just spending more than you're making. And all we have to do is flip it. Easier said than done, but it really is that simple. And so in addition to, to, to financial debt, there's three other types of debt. Emotional debt, relational debt, and spiritual debt. The emotional debt is spending our feelings and affection on things and expecting some type of a return that's not being met. Relational debt is pouring ourselves into people and expecting some type of a return that we're not going to get. Spiritual debt is living on the past reserves of our relationship with God and expecting that we're going to continue to get the same result when we're not putting in the same amount of time. So I want to do something. This is going to be odd, but it's going to be fun, but bear with me. So we're not going to put anything on the screens. We all learned the Lord's Prayer when we were young, and it's all been baked into us throughout the years. So as a body, I want us all to say the Lord's Prayer together and say it just the way you memorized it. I'm going to say it the way I memorized it, and then I want to see if something happens in the middle of this. So on three, we're going to start with our Father, right? One, two, three. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our as we and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Woo! Let's give yourselves a hand. You remembered the Lord's Prayer. Well, most of you did. So, of course, if, if you don't know your Bible versions, I learned and remembered the King James Version, right? Thine and thou and this and that. Well, it's interesting because the reason why I paused in and forgive us our... What else did someone say? What else? Sin. So there's really three common ones. Sin, trespass, and debts. The funny thing is, is that the most popular one, and this is just my feeling, the most popular one you hear is trespasses, right? And the funny thing about that is, is that when I looked up the, de the, the, um, the different versions of Bibles to see where they were found, it was hard to find a, a version with trespasses in it. It's actually in two versions from the 1500s that took root in the church way back then and just stayed. But if you look at, and the only other one I think I found sin in was actually the New Living, which is the one that Tim uses and we use here most of the time. 
But every other major translation uses debts. Well, why would God put in the way to pray? Why would he talk about debt? Because he knew that we were going to struggle with financial, emotional, relational, and spiritual debt. He knew that we were going to overextend ourselves and that we were going to need to come back to him to get it right, to spend less than we're bringing in, right? He just knew it. So that's why I believe he put it in there. And so forgiveness, the definition of forgiveness, according to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, says a pardon for a fault or an offense to excuse from payment for a what? A debt owed. So forgiveness is about settling up debts. And when you look at the, the scriptural principle of, 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 of uh, borrowing and lending, the Bible says that the borrower will become slave to the lender. We use, 99% of the time, we're talking about money. And, and, and it's a great example, and that's why I do believe that, 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 that God uses a lot of illustrations with money because it's just an illustration. It's not about the money. Because when you really look at um, the principle it actually says you become a slave to the lender. Think about if you've ever had uh, an opportunity to borrow money from a family member, right? Immediately the relationship changes. They either start avoiding you or you start avoiding them, right? Oh, I'm not going to that party because uh, Susie will be there and I owe her 20 bucks. <laughs> you know, or what? It's, it, it is a principle in the land that we can't get, get away from. And so when you look at a great example in Matthew chapter 18, we're not, you don't need to go there. I'm just going to give a par paraphrase of it, but, but read it on your own. Uh, chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. And it's essentially the unforgiving debtor, the parable of the unforgiving debtor. So it's about a man who owes millions of dollars to a king, and he's about to be thrown in jail. And he literally throws himself down and begs of the king. The king has mercy on him and says, you're forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, I'm forgiving your million-dollar debt. He goes out and comes across a friend that owes him a few thousand. You owe me a few thousand. You better pay me. The Bible actually says he grabs him by the throat and says, I demand instant payment. Well, the guy didn't have the money. He threw himself down and begged. He said, nope, you're going to jail. He hasn't thrown in jail. Just got released of millions. He's owed thousands. And he, has no, he doesn't have to extend the same mercy that he was extended. And so the beauty of this is, is that in the end, the king finds out he's livid. He takes the man and says, how dare you? I forgave you. You didn't forgive him. He throws him in jail, but it also says that he was actually tortured until he paid back the debt. And all he had to do was forgive a few thousand after being forgiven a few million. And so it's no different. It's a money example, but it never was about the money. It was about his heart. And if we can extend forgiveness, if we can give um, pardon, if we can give grace and mercy to others the same way God has done to us, it's going to make our life a whole lot easier. And so here's how I know that this, this, that this parable had nothing to do with money, because in verse 21, the question that, that, that actually led to this, to this parable from Jesus was by Peter. He said, Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And then he went straight into that parable. Yet we think that parable is about money. That was a forgiveness parable. He said, you have to forgive. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Everyone's going to owe everyone something. But at some point, we have to let it go. And so debt of any kind is a sign that we're not living a life of decrease. 
Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. A lifestyle of prayer and fasting is the best way to begin our own personal decrease. Financial debt, emotional debt, relational debt, spiritual debt, all symptoms that we're living a life of increase. So I'm going to end with this. Dehydration, inward and outward distance, and the debt we just talked about are all signs that if we see them in our life, anywhere in our life, that we're not living a life of decrease. We have to start asking God for help. Lord, help me to see the blind spots. Help me to see the areas that I'm dehydrated. Help me to see the areas that I have debt. Help me to see the areas where there's distance between me and you and between others. And that's the only way. And so with, if, with, with this whole series, what I love about it is that it's not just about fasting food, right? I mean, that's a, that's a huge way. If we can do that, that's great. So if, if we look at our prayer life as being an intercessor, putting others before ourselves, uh, set up a listening chair, fall in love with our Bible, write down what God says to us, that's the beginning of a great prayer life. Fasting, make it part of your lifestyle. Fast, fast from something always. Pick something once a month, once a week. I used to pick something once a year. That's a little harder. But if you start with just a week, two weeks, it doesn't matter the time. It's the heart behind it, right? And so here are some other fasts to consider. How about we fast regrets? Regret empties anticipation, flattens dreams, and suffocates hope. Regret is a form of self-pity. How about we fast fixing it? Fast rationalism, trying to figure everything out. How about fasting formulas? There's no three steps in a blessing. It's about relationship. Let's fast formulas. How about we fast avoidance? Let's address and, 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 and take the issues in our own life and our own hearts head on and be real with it. Let's fast spectatorship. Hey, how about we, like Jesus, hey, put me in, coach. Put me in. I'm ready. Even if it's going to be messy, because it will be. How about fast speeding past sorrow? Allow yourself to grieve losses. With Jesus, sit with your sorrow and let loss do its eternal work in your soul. Fast isolation, fast stinginess, fast appearances. Stop worrying about what everyone thinks. Just be you. Fast talking. Fast talking. Not fast talking. Give up talking for times. Listen to God. Listen to others. Honey, I promise I'm going to listen more to you. I promise. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> fast religious, cultural, and political profiling. Come on now. Ask God to shine his light upon any form of profiling where we're dismissing those who Jesus would welcome. And last, fast denial, fast comparison, and fast collecting praise. But the most important one, let's fast increase. Jesus fasted heaven by coming to earth. How about we fast some things on earth so that we can experience a little bit of heaven while we're still on earth? You bow your heads. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on social media at Embassy Irving.